0: Welcome to this short talk on how to approach fantasy literature. My name is Stuart Lee. I'm a member of the English faculty at the University of Oxford, and I want to give you some tips and tricks and various approaches to looking at this very important and popular genre. Throughout the lecture, I'm going to use one text as an example to try and illustrate some of the points I'm making. Now, out of the entire corpus of fantasy literature choose one text may seem a bit daft, but I'm going to try and use one which I think most people will be familiar with through either the filmed versions or from reading the books themselves, hopefully Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. First, let us consider what is it that these texts might have in common? The Odyssey, Beowulf, Pilgrim's Progress, The Castle of Otranto, Frankenstein, Alice in Wonderland, Winnie the Pooh, Animal Farm, and of course, The Lord of the Rings. Well, they are all considered by some critics as works of what we now call fantasy literature. But how can any single definition or categorization attempt to group these texts together? That there is a grouping of texts under fantasy as there is under science fiction, is fairly obvious. If you go into any bookshop on the high street, you will be able to go to this section where there is a collection of books under the title fantasy literature, and you'll be able to buy various books by various authors the same way you could buy detective novels or science fiction and so on. But what is it that brings all these books together? What is it that links them? Fantasy literature, as I have already mentioned, stands out as a separate what we would call genre, but it has distinct links with other genres such as science fiction or horror and supernatural. But what is it that distinguishes fantasy from science fiction, science fiction from horror, supernatural and horror and supernatural from fantasy? And similarly, what texts might we say overlap the two or three genres? When you start to answer these questions, that's when you start to try and get towards a definition of what fantasy is. It's made slightly more difficult with fantasy literature because it does feel like the ground underneath it is moving constantly. Here is a list of just some of the terms that we hear associated when people talk about fantasy literature. High, epic fantasy, sword and sorcery, low, heroic fantasy, whimsy, magical realism, urban fantasy, dark fantasy, historical fantasy, and so on. These are what we might call subgenres. if the overarching genre is fantasy. Examples of, for example, high or epic fantasy, where we're usually talking about something on a very large scale in terms of geographical space, but also time, and indeed entire worlds depend on the outcomes of the actions of the heroic characters at the centre of the book a good example of that would be of course the lord of the rings sword and sorcery or lower heroic fantasy is usually focused on an individual usually some form of bigger than life character who goes on single adventures fighting their way through very action-packed stories uh, for example r.e howard's conan the barbarian series A whimsy might be something where the fantasy is kind of all a bit tongue in cheek like Alice in Wonderland and magical realism might be like some of the stories that you get from Borges. But returning to the preliminary list of books, we could group these together perhaps as all containing elements of something which simply cannot happen, at least according to our current knowledge. We have the reanimation of a corpse to the talking teddy bear but this in turn can cause problems things that believe, people believed in the past as possible which we would now generally accept as impossible and vice versa may mean that the text moves between genres between believability and unbelievability so from that sense from realism to fantasy for example we could perhaps perceive a possible future where technology is so far advanced, where some form of reanimation is possible. But the idea that by nature, just as a natural event, a teddy bear, a stuffed teddy bear could stand up, talk and have adventures is unrealistic, is simply unbelievable. So there, there we may have a distinction there between fantasy and moving perhaps with Frankenstein to science fiction. In English literature, the search for fantasy's origin can take us quite a way back, as we shall see. But let's start with a comment by Dryden in 1712, where he talked about stories which embodied the fairy way of writing. And this seems to suggest something slightly strange, magical, not only in the content, but also in the composition process or purpose. If we move to more modern scholarship, we will see terms such as impossible unreal wonder when people attempt to define fantasy literature. But there is also a very strong point that what we get in these types of books is not illogical or inconsistent, in fact consistency is one of the key components of a successful fantasy novel, as we shall see. But to come back to our definition, it may be considered as something which cannot happen, and more importantly, never could. So how do you start to approach such texts It is true to say that there are some verse fantasies and indeed there are some fantasy representations in drama but for the most part what you will come across are short stories or novels So a good way to start might be to consider how we would we would by a standard approach talk about a novel or a text Here we tend to look under four key components setting narration plot and characterization. Setting is simple. <clears throat> where and when does the story take place? But in the case of fantasy, as opposed to mimetic, realistic literature, how do we actually know where and when this is taking place? They often take place in imaginary worlds. More importantly, do we believe in it? And I'll come back to this later on when we talk about something called world building. Narration and point of view, as elsewhere, we would consider is, for example, the presence of the narrator. Is the first person or third person used? Is the narrator ever present, as in, for example, Tolkien's The Hobbit? This is standard stuff, and in fantasy, because the author is challenged with conveying the unknown and the impossible, the narrator can be very intrusive. Tolkien himself realised that the narrator in The Hobbit became a bit of a barrier for people to accept the text, certainly his own children. Plot is the succession of events that take place. How is the plot unfolded, the exposition? What complications are introduced and when? Are there turning points in a clear climax? Does it end with resolution? With exposition, we also consider the structure. Is it linear? Does the narrator flashback or foreshadow? Again, all standard stuff. Does the narrator follow the norm? In *The Lord of the Rings*, for example, as Tom Shippey pointed out, the complex toing and froing of time in the chapter *The Council of Elrond* in *The Fellowship of the Ring* is something we would tend not to get in a traditional novel. It moves back and forth between millennia. *The Lord of the Rings* actually finishes off a story that started thousands of years before, but we only get glimpses of that throughout the text. Finally, there's characterization. We've come to expect our characters to be fully human in the modern novel, and that may not be the case in fantasy. We try to consider characters as either flat, to use E.M. Forster's term, one might call an actant, where they are an abstraction or representative, or rounded, what we might call an actor, the type one would expect in the modern novel where you get full insights and they are very realistic in their emotional responses. How do we find out about these characters? Is it through telling, explanatory, or do we show? Are we shown the characters or do we discover them through dramatisation? Again, to return to The Hobbit, one might say that the dwarves that accompany Bilbo Bagan are not very rounded characters. There is very little to distinguish each of them apart from the colour of their cloaks, with the odd exception like Thorin. In fantasy, we often confront the possibility that the character elements are often expressed through race. In The Lord of the Rings, again, we do not need to delve much into the inner thoughts of Legolas, the elf, or Gimli, the dwarf, to understand their take on life, because we have known traits already associated with elves and dwarves. It's worth noting also, for example, it's quite common in fantasy to come across what we call doubling, where two or more characters are paired to show a contrast. Again in Lord of the Rings, the valiant Faramir, who takes the right path, is opposed of course to his brother Boromir, who falls to the power of the ring. But all of this tends to reveal information at the level of the individual text, which is fine, but it doesn't really help us to get to a macro understanding of the genre of fantasy. To this end then, critics have tended to adopt two main approaches. The first one is a chronological approach. The second is one of common elements or devices, modes, structures, tropes, motifs that bind these texts together. Let us begin by looking at a chronological approach to fantasy or the long history of fantasy. A good example might be the Cambridge Companion to Fantasy Literature, as you will see edited by Edward James and Farah Mendelssohn, which opens with a historical section covering fantasy from Dryden to Dunsany gothic and horror fiction, American fantasy 1820-1950, to 1950, the development of children's fantasy and concludes with Tolkien Lewis and the explosion of genre fantasy before moving to a thematic study. A similar approach is also taken by Mendelssohn and James in their short history of fantasy. In such studies, and there are many, you will often be presented with a table at the beginning listing the fantasy publications in date order through the centuries, but this presents a very interesting question. First, what would be the starting point? The Cambridge Companion starts with Beowulf, then has the Mabinogian, the the Fairy Queen, and so on. Whereas Mendelssohn and James' short history begins with the Epic of Gilgamesh, Homer's Odyssey, Virgil's Id, i.e. goes back to classical literature. Second, if we accept our earlier premise that fantasy literature is about things which we as a reader believe could not happen, but the author themselves shares the same belief, how do we square this with the fact that the audience of Beowulf, for example, probably did believe in monsters and magic, and maybe indeed the poet did too as well? So was it a realistic text at the time of its composition, and it's only now that we would consider it fantasy or containing fantastical elements? The chronology of fantasy literature falls into many categories, and here I just list a few. A lot of the scholars will for example go back to classical and biblical texts, and certainly medieval texts. These are often termed as taproot texts because they are often influence or provide some form of source for later fantasy writings we move into the 16th and 17th century, we can see fantastical elements in Spencer, Shakespeare, Milton, and so on. But it's really with the explosion of what we might say, folklore, folk tales, where people like Perrault in 1697, or later on the Grimms brothers started to collect fairy tales and folk tales and bring these all together that we start to see the embedding of fantasy elements in short stories. If you couple this with the 1001 Arabian Nights which first appeared in an English translation in 1885, you can see this explosion of interests and influences in the fantasy genre. Taking this all together and putting the Arabian Nights aside for for a moment, we can see that one of the things that things like Perrault and the Grimm's brothers did was really establish the idea of a medieval setting. Most fantasy stories will have things like wizards, castles, princesses, kings, dragons, and so on. And it's not surprising, therefore, when we start to see the emergence of adult fantasy literature in the 19th century with William Morris, George MacDonald, and moving into the 20th century with Lord Dunsany, that we can see medieval elements reused again and again and again. However, as we moved into the late 19th century, of course, and the age of rationalism, where people were adopting scientific methodology and constantly seeking scientific explanations, stories such as fantasy tales seem to have no place for an adult readership at least. And we can see that they were gradually moved to the nursery. We have a series of books written for children and indeed, fantasy literature for children around the turn of the century and into the early part of the twentieth century was very, very common. Another area in this very very brief analysis of the chronology of fantasy literature is the influence of the Gothic, which of course moved into the ghost story or horror story. But this was picked up in the twentieth century, early twentieth century, and by writers such as Algernon Blackwood or Arthur Macon, who are writing what we might call weird fiction, and one of the most famous exponents of this is H.P. Lovecraft, the American writer writing in the 20s onwards. The sea change, or perhaps one of the most important um, developments of fantasy literature happened with the publication of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Regardless of the opinion of Tolkien, most scholars, and particularly those of the history of fantasy literature, cite the publication of The Lord of the Rings in 1954 to 1955 as a seminal moment. Some, like Tom Shippey, go as far as to say it created a genre almost single-handedly. But perhaps that's unfair. Of course, fantasy literature was written in the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, as we've already seen. And indeed, Tolkien had contemporaries who were also writing forms of what we might call fantasy literature, his friend and colleague C.S. Lewis for one, Mervyn Peake, T.H. White, and so on. But as John Clute said in uh, his analysis of fantasy literature, it marked the end of apology. Writers now no longer needed to feel ashamed of writing fantasy, certainly for adults. And it did seem to cement the idea, such as the lengthy trilogy, although it was actually six books, the motives and tropes of the medieval world as already mentioned, and most importantly, the use of a fully realised secondary immersive world, Middle Earth. Now, Tolkien was clearly not the first writer to create a new world, in fact that idea had gone back centuries, or to look to medieval literature as we've already said. But he was the first 20th century writer perhaps to combine the two and command a wide readership, moving to a global readership in the 1960s and, of course, being picked up again and again, particularly with the emergence of the Peter Jackson films. One cannot help but agree with Terry Pratchett when he described Tolkien as being like Mount Fuji in Japanese prints, a ubiquitous background presence. Two further things to note about Tolkien. First, he taught, as did Lewis, several of the next wave of British, fan- British fantasy writers such as Susan Cooper, Diane Wynne-Jones to name but two. And secondly, he set a mark in the sand that subsequent writers either tried to build on, emulate or even reject to take fantasy in different directions. In terms of our survey, I'd just like to draw a line by noting the what we call the Ballantine Adult Fantasy Series or BAFS. Between 1969 and 1974 this published 66 titles in around 68 volumes, which you could say established the genre. Indeed Williamson notes that it was probably this that really cemented the term fantasy as the description of the genre. We have writers such as Macdonald, Morris, Carroll, Edison, Howard, Tolkien, Lewis, Sprague de Camp, Pratt, Leiber, to name but a few, which were reproduced at this time and then also inspired a new wave of writers who were then to pick up the mantle in the 70s and beyond. Putting the chronological approach to one side, now let's consider how scholars have tried to look at commonalities across fantasy texts to see if this revealed anything about the genre. One of the common areas to look at is plot structure. And in this, there are similarities very much in works such as by Vladimir Propp, or Joseph Campbell, who were studying comparative mythology in the early and mid part of the 20th century and looking for common plot areas which were replicated across many, many titles. Farah Mendelssohn's Rhetorics of Fantasy is a very, very good modern example of this. Mendelssohn argued that fantasy succeeds when the literary techniques employed are most appropriate to the reader's expectation of that category of fantasy. In other words, fantasy is popular because you kind of get what you expect, but in the hands of good writers this can be reimagined. She proposed four main structures around which we could base or consider various fantasy texts. The most important and, and obvious one is what's called the portal quest fantasy, where the character leaves a familiar surrounding and passes through a portal into an unknown place, for example The line the Witch in the Wardrobe, or Stephen Donaldson's Lord Fowl's Bane series. A subversion of this might be Diana Wynne-Jones' Howl's Moving Castle. Such tales do not have to be quests, but the overwhelming majority are, as Mendelssohn noted, and she saw a pattern in many of these books, a reasonably defined journey, a setting of a moral universe with moral expectation, and the taproots being the epic, the medieval quest, and so on. Immersive fantasy is where the fantasy world functions on all levels as a complete world, it's an entirely secondary world, and although Mendelssohn felt the Lord of the Rings was more a portal quest, immersive might well be a very good description for Middle-earth. The positioning of the omniscient narrator, as Mendelssohn noted, is crucial, but most importantly, a point where we will return to, is that the world needs to be coherent. Mendelssohn's third category is that of intrusion fantasy, where more often than not, the setting is the real world or a simulation of the real world that is intruded upon by fantastical elements. This is perhaps something we would find in writers like Lovecraft or Stephen King, where the horror elements intrude in New England's small town. And finally, there's liminal fantasy, where there really are no barriers between the real and fantastical elements. They live side by side, such as Susanna Clarke's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. Common devices are used in many of these books by authors to try and create what we know as world building. That is to make the world, be it a liminal world or an entirely secondary world that you immerse yourself into to be entirely believable. And that's paradoxical as it may sound to you, because of course you are trying to make the fantastic elements, those which are entirely unbelievable, believable. To do this, writers tend to employ a variety of methods. Most notably, the text is often presented as authentic. Think of the number of stories that utilise the discovered manuscript book idea where the story survives to us. The device is used as far back as Thomas More's Utopia, but more recently in the great Gothic novel, The Castle of Otranto. And it's actually how The Hobbit and the Lord of the Ring uses uses for its framing device, where the story is actually the written down memoirs of Bilbo Baggins and then picked up by Frodo and Sam. Consider also the number of books that surround themselves with scholarly apparatus, the most obvious being a map at the beginning or end, The map not only helps the writer and reader address the spatial and topographical concerns of the world that they're they're about to be moving in, but it also gives a sense of authenticity. There are other scholarly apparatus we often get with these types of books. We have appendices and genealogies, The Lord of the Rings being a fantastic example of this, and this all leads us to a sense of depth which can be engendered by embedding in the text references to oblique past events. You will often be reading the story and then someone will make a reference to something that happened a long time ago. And very often, or more often than not, you don't get a full explanation of that. You are just meant to realize that there is more to this story than meets the eye. Depth can also be engendered through familiarity, drawing on concepts that the readers already know about. Tolkien himself noted that it's desirable if you can, necessary if you can, to use words that are already in existence, which have a certain sense and are laden with a certain sense, and therefore I use dwarves and Middle-earth and elves and so on. You can't have everything absolutely strange at the outright. So for many Western writers, they can be assisted greatly in terms of making the world seem familiar, that first step to believability, by drawing on known mythologies, and to repeat the medieval motives and tropes we've discussed at length earlier. This is what is familiar in such writers as Sir Walter Scott, or indeed in Hollywood. It engenders in reader a sense of knowing, which in turn can assist with immersion. Perhaps one of the most famous essays on this is Tolkien's On Fairy Stories. In this, Tolkien is at great pains to stress that the story or environment should be presented as true. It's divided into various sections. Under the section entitled Children, Tolkien notes that children have what we might term literary belief. The storyteller or sub-creator can bring them into the secondary world, the world of the fairy tale, where they encounter, as a listener or a reader, what was called as secondary belief. This is more powerful than cold, a suspension of disbelief. To achieve this, Tolkien believed that most importantly, fantasy needed an inner consistency of reality. The secondary world the author, subcreator, creates requires labor and thought. The author of fantasy aspires to capture a sensation of enchantment, where you, the reader, almost dreamlike, enter the secondary world. For Tolkien, fantasy was thus a high art form and achieving the above was no mean feat because it engendered in the reader the satisfaction of certain primordial human desires, namely to survey the depths of time and space, often on an epic scale. Moreover, Tolkien argued that by entering the secondary world through fantasy stories, we can achieve what he described as recovery. By this, he meant regaining a clear view of the real world, an idea common perhaps we can see in medieval dream tales. Most importantly, fantasy can provide us with consolation as it often tackles the great escape, namely the great escape from death. Even if this is not explicit in the plot, Tolkien perceives it as coming through in moments which he termed eucatastrophe, the sudden joyous term which denies universal final defeat, which all fantasy stories he believed should or would have. A good example of this in the Lord of the Rings, is of course the destruction of the ring, even at the very end. Frodo fails almost in his quest, and the quest is only saved by Gollum's intervention. Suddenly there is, when the massed armies of the allies are surrounded by the even larger armies of Sauron, a sudden joyous turn, the Dark Lord falls. Now, you can agree or disagree with Tolkien, but it is perhaps a partial answer to why fantasy literature is so popular. Is it, as its detractors say, simply escapism? Does it just allow us to forget about our worldly woes for a time and immerse ourselves in another world? Or does the epic scale or endless possibilities afforded to an author, freed of the shackles of reality, allow them to explore real world issues, but on a scale impossible in mimetic literature? or in an environment that does not require a familiarity of experience in the reader. As Mark Chadbourne, the modern day fantasy writer said, fantasy is actually about reality. It's just about taking a longer and bigger view. Fantasy novels may be said to tap back into emotions we had as children, but long forgot, or the ability to have secondary belief to give you that sensation we rarely have as adults, namely wonder, As Ursula Le Guin commented, an adult is not a dead child, but a child that survived. Do these texts go even further back than that and awaken in us some long lost understanding or desire for stories that give us the legends of old, stirring, as Atterbury argued, longings that either did not exist previously or that the reader was not aware of? Or are they just rollicking good yarns? So in this brief talk, I've tried to give a quick summary of how we might define the genre of fantasy and also be aware of the many sub-genres that you could use traditional approaches such as setting, plot, narrator, characterization to look at fantasy novels. Um, but there are special questions you might want to ask with the fantasy text. I've touched on the long, but in this case, quite a short history of fantasy. I've considered how people have looked at common structures motifs and tropes. I've briefly mentioned immersion and belief through Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, and I've touched also on popularity. Why might it be so that these books sell so well and are indeed dominating popular culture at the moment? I will leave you with this quote from Ursula Le Guin from 1973. We who hobnob with hobbits and tell tales about little green men are quite used to being dismissed as mere entertainers or sternly disapproved of as escapists. But I think that perhaps the categories are changing like the times. There's a certain sense of defensiveness to Le Guin's comment in 1973, as if she was aware that writing or reading or talking about such texts may seem childish to many academics. However, that has changed. Fantasy literature is now one of the most important and popular genres around. It dominates popular culture through the works of Tolkien or the Game of Thrones series, and it deserves considerable study. Finally, here is just a brief reading list of some of the books you might want to look at to allow you to develop your study of fantasy literature.